I'm Leslie Sharp from the Department of Anthropology here at Barnard College, and I'd like to welcome all of you. We have an absolutely wonderful panel here today. I think it's the best one of the day, frankly. Um, <laughs> um, this is the panel that's entitled Marginality and, and Exclusivity in ART Practices, and I myself keep wanting to call it art. So as I, I lean towards that artistic end, I think it's a nice way to think about it. Um, I'm going to introduce all the panelists at once so that you don't have to listen to me throughout their wonderful talks. And please keep in mind, I'm only scratching the surface here. We have some really very impressive people with us here today. So very quickly, let me just tell you a bit about each of them. First, David Eng came, comes to us from the University of Pennsylvania, where he is professor of English in the program in Comparative Literature and Literacy Theory and in the program in Asian American Studies. Gesundheit. His areas of specialization include Asian diaspora, queer studies, critical race theory, visual culture, and psychoanalysis. He is the author of several books, including Racial Castration, Managing Masculinity in Asian America, and The Feeling of Kinship, Queer Liberalism, and the Racialization of Intimacy, which is forthcoming. He's interested in the topic of transnational adoption from Asia, and this is a topic he'll address today. So welcome, David. Thank you for coming. Faye Ginsberg and Raina Rapp are both members of the Department of Anthropology at NYU or New York University here in the city, and they're going to be giving a joint presentation, so I'm going to introduce them together in, in a sense. Within our shared discipline of anthropology, their names, it's, it's really quite true, their names are virtually synonymous with the study of reproduction and feminist anthropology. We wouldn't be talking about these topics to the, way, the way we do if it weren't for them. They will be giving a joint presentation concerning the impact of raising disabled children over the life cycle and thus on the reverberations of reproduction in light of medical technologies that enable, enable children's survival and the shifting legal parameters that come into play as well. I'm not sure who's going to speak first, so I'm just going to introduce them individually alphabetically. Faye Ginsberg is the David B. Is it Kreiser? Kreiser? Okay. Kreiser Professor of Anthropology at NYU, where she also serves as director for the Center for Media, Culture, and History, and the Center for Religion and Media. She wears other hats as well. She is vice president of the Familial Dysautonomia Foundation and co-director of the Council for the Study of Disability in New York. Her first book, Contested Lives, The Abortion Debate in an American Community, which won, if I'm counting correctly, four book awards, altered in profound ways how many of us conceived ha-ha, of the politics of reproduction in the US. She's also a filmmaker and a recipient of a coveted MacArthur Fellowship and a Barnard graduate, and I have to say this. <laughs> she tells me she wrote her thesis on the domestication of the dromedary in Mesopotamia, <laughs> which she says is where reproduction all started. Her her most recent work, which is in progress, is entitled Mediating Culture, Indigenous Identity in a Digital Age. And she and Raina Rapp have collaborated for many years on topics related to reproduction as exemplified by their edited collection, Conceiving the New World Order, The Global Politics of Reproduction, yet another prize-winning book. So welcome, Faye. Raina Rapp is a renowned medical anthropologist, and she's professor of anthropology at NYU. She's a central figure, again, within our discipline, shaping for several decades now 
how we think about women in reproduction and how women themselves think about their reproductive capacities and about biotechnological interventions. Her book, Testing Women, Testing the Fetus, The Social Impact of, Amer of Amniocentesis in America, was awarded the J.I. Staley Prize by SAR, or the School of Advanced Research in Santa Fe, in 2004. This book examines how women of diverse backgrounds interpret outcomes in prenatal testing and associated disabilities alongside the relevance of abortion decisions. She is also engaged in research on family activism around genetic diseases, and she and Faye are currently working together on child disabilities and what they term cultural and neurodiversity in America. As noted above, she's co-editor of the award-winning book, Conceiving the New World Order. Raina, thanks for coming to be here. And Michelle Good Goodwin is Everett Fraser, professor in law at the University of Minnesota. She holds joint appointments at the University Medical School and the School of Public Health. I feel as though I'm working with people who have been cloned and there's more than one of them out there. Her interests focus on biotechnologies and bioethics alongside concerns for property, ownership, and identity, specifically in reference to the human body. She's the author of Black Markets, The Supply and Demand of Human Body Parts, and the forthcoming book entitled Baby Markets, and she is also co-editor of the book The Black Body, Reading, Rewriting, and Reimagining. Michelle Goodwin is also the chair of the American Association of Law School Section on Law, Medicine, and Healthcare, and she is a fellow of the Institute of Medicine at Chicago. Michelle, thank you for joining us. So without further ado, I'm going to hand the floor over to David. Thanks. Thanks, Leslie. So um, I'm very excited to be here. I, for the first time in 14 years of teaching, uh, I'm doing a graduate course this year on critical race theory, which is entirely women. I have no men in the class, so I feel right at home today. I feel like this is my big graduate seminar, but you know, on steroids, on hormones or something. So I want to thank Janet for inviting me and Hisela, Lucy Trainer, Hope Dector for uh, all the arrangements, as well as Leslie and all the panelists. Um, the conference has been fabulous, and I think that all of us are talking about a nexus of issues and are overlapping in a really stupendous way. So I'm going to consider today the connection uh, between assisted rep reproductive technology, but in particular, uh, its connection to adoption. And I thought that I would start with an example um, of art on art. So um, I'm actually talking about a book and a film in relation to adoption. And I thought I would start with Dan Savage's The Kid. Um, has any, have anybody read this book? You know, Dan Savage is the guy who writes Savage Love, the gay columnist. Um, he used to show up in the Village Voice all the time, I guess, when there was a Village Voice. And he has a book called The Kid, uh, and the subtitle is What Happened After My Boyfriend and I Decided to Go and Get Pregnant. And so he talks about a little anecdote where, um, this is in the late 90s, he goes to an adoption agency and he uh, has to take a course with his boyfriend on uh, adopting kids and he's there with a room full of um, straight couples. And basically one woman, her name is Ruth, um, this, is a, this is a kind of recount of what uh, Ruth says, he says that Ruth explained how infertility placed an enormous strain on her marriage and how during treatments she fell into deep depression. 
One day at the end of her rope, she read through about the side effects of an infertility drug she'd been taken. Third on the list was mild insanity. She decided that having her own biological child was not worth her sanity and stopped taking the drugs. This was how Ruth arrived at adoption, and her story was very similar to the others we heard that day as we went around the table telling our stories. And so Savage writes about how they go around the room and he hears uh, five of the exact same very sad stories, and it gets to his turn, and he kind of sticks his foot in his mouth, and he says, uh, hi, I'm Dan, and this is Terry, and as you can see, we have some fertility issues of our own. <laughs> so I just thought I would start with a little anecdote um, of Dan Savage just to talk about how the question of adoption and what I would like to focus on today, transnational adoption, really is intimately tied to the question of art and you know, all these different forms of technology and reproduction. And what I thought I would do, um, Leslie asked us to speak for just 15 minutes, so I'm gonna go really quickly uh, through how I got interested in the topic of transnational adoption. Um, and I wanted to talk about not just my prior research on the political, but in particular on the psychic economy of transnational adoption. So I think one of the issues that we haven't really discussed yet is um, many people have talked about how we're facing through these new reproductive technologies and through things like transnational adoption, new forms of family and kinship. And we've talked a lot about the political economy of globalization that's related to that. But I'm very interested as a psychoanalytic scholar in what the psychic liniments might be and what the psychic structure that might allow or disallow for the reproduction of social forms of family and kinship. So I'm gonna do that and then I'm gonna show a clip, a two minute clip from first person plural to open up these questions. And then finally, I'm gonna talk a little bit about some of the new research I'm doing on reparation um, and the relationship between political and psychic theories of reparation. So a few years ago, I became interested in racial reparation as a potential response to previous work I have done on racial melancholia, the ungrievable but everyday losses associated with processes of immigration, assimilation, and racialization for Asian Americans. My new project arose in the context of research I had been developing on transnational adoption of Asian children by white parents in the United States. I hadn't originally anticipated writing about transnational adoption, but I became interested in the topic for a simple reason. Over the last decade, in my introduction to Asian American literature and culture classes, more and more students have come out to me, not as gay or lesbian, but as transnational adoptees. In recounting their experiences, my students often employ the language of the closet and the vocabulary of shame. They stress how they feel invisible as transnational adoptees and how they feel compelled to come out of the closet time and again. They also admit how such personal disclosures exacerbate their anxieties of being stigmatized and of feeling neither adequately Asian American nor sufficiently white. Finally, they emphasize how such ambivalent impulses provoke fears that they are being disloyal or ungrateful to their adoptive parents. The complexity of these various issues sparked a series of extended classroom discussions. Is the transnational adoptee an immigrant? Is she Asian American? In turn, are her white adoptive parents Asian American? Such issues emerging at the intersection of queer studies and the contemporary politics of race 
made me, to, made me start to think about transnational adoption as a new form of passing in our so-called colorblind age. However, unlike prior histories of racial or sexual passing, the inscription of the closet in transnational adoption seemed to be less about the inability to detect a hidden racial or sexual trait than about our collective and willful refusal to see difference in the face of it. In this regard, I began to think about transnational adoption as a very particular form of racial melancholia, a very particular form of grieving and loss marked by encrypted histories of war and violence, as well as the increasing commodification of infant girls and boys as a form of gendered embodied value in the global system. Historically, transnational adoption must be linked not only to humanist, humanitarian, religious narratives of love, altruism, and salvation, but also to histories of war, militarism, and gendered violence in the Trans-Pacific. Indeed, contemporary practices of transnational adoption began in the US after World War II as a response to the plight of European war orphans from Germany and Poland. However, it was only after the Korean War and under the shadow of Cold War politics in the hot war zones of East and Southeast Asia that the largest wave of transnational adoption was to take place. Since its partition, South Korea has expedited the adoption of well over 200,000 South Korean children to the US and other Western nations, the first adoptees being the mi mixed race offspring of Korean camp and comfort women and foreign GIs. In 2006, South Korea, with the world's ninth largest economy, still remained the fourth largest sending nation of transnational adoptees to the US. So you can see in that movement from war to a global economy, um, the way in which the industry of transnational adoption has grown into a worldwide industry. Um, and I thought that the discussion earlier today about fertility rates the mismatch of fertility rates really kind of underscores um, that uh, commodification. Scholarship in postcolonial and transnational feminism link the historical emergence of war brides and mail order brides to foundations of mili pro military prostitution, comfort women, and the commodification of third world female bodies for first world male consumption and pleasure. While some feminist scholars have been reluctant to associate the purchase of a wife with the heroic act of saving a female child, transnational adoption occurs predominantly in areas where not only women, but also nations themselves cannot care for their own children. Today, we might describe the commodification of infants, many of whom are baby girls, in the global marketplace as a gendered legacy of these histories of war and violence. Contemporary practices of transnational adoption symptomize the ever-increasing international division of gendered labor under the shadows of global capital, its ever-increasing commodification and biologizing of human life. And so we talked about this um, in the prior two panels. Uh, one, about the outsourcing of what was first labor, right? So just thinking about the space of New York, nanny, nannies who are coming from um, third world countries, uh, women of color, um, and immigrants. And then I think this is the next phase, which is not just about the outsourcing of labor and domestic labor, but the outsourcing of reproductive labor. Um, and then, you know, I would also want to think about how this uh, framework works within a national economy. So as 
a person who works in Asian immigration and comparative race, I think that it also brings up a whole number of topics around the triangulation, for instance, of race relations between black, white, and Asian. So for instance, white families that are adopting, um, can they imagine a black child in the family uh, more easily than they can imagine an Asian child in the family? How does the stereotype of the model minority Asian, uh, the kid that always does good in school, uh, doesn't uh, cause trouble, right? How does that child get integrated psychically into the boundaries of the white middle class family in a way that black kids cannot? So if this in brief delineates one hidden history of transnational adoption, what in turn are the occluded psychic contours of the practice? So through conversations with my students and by studying recent cultural productions, memoirs, novels, documentaries, of, transnational, of the transnational adoptees themselves, I came to this realization concerning its psychic effects. Unlike first-generation Asian immigrant parents and their second-generation American-born children who typically negotiate problems of immigration, assimilation, and racialization as intersubjective and intergenerational conflict, the transnational adoptee often struggles with these problems in social and psychic isolation. That is, the loss of the mother and motherland associated with the transnational adoptees' involuntary migration from east to west and from south to north often remains unaffirmed by those closest to her. In Diane Borchelin's documentary, First Person Plural, for instance, the adoptive parents' joy at the arrival of their new Korean daughter effectively overwrites the young girl's sorrow and her terror. And so I'm going to show you this two-minute clip from first person plural, which came out um, in 2000. And the filmmaker, Diane Borchelim, was adopted when she was eight years old from Korea. She was actually switched for another child. And she says to her adoptive parents, you know, I have a family in Korea, brothers and sisters. And they say, no, 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 that's just your fantasy. You're an orphan. We have the papers to prove it. And so she gets older. She grows up. Um, she suffers from clinical depression. And then she starts to investigate and realizes that, in fact, um, she has been switched. And she arranges, she finds her birth mother, she arranges a whole kind of reunion, and in the middle of that reunion, she just stops the camera, right? She's about to bring her parent, her, her American mother to Korea to meet her Korean birth mother, and she just says, in my mind, there was no place for two mothers, right? And that really um, opens up, I think, the psychic terrain of um, the, the specificity, right, of the psychic structure of transnational adoption. How is it that we create space in our mind for two, three, four, as we said, mothers, right, because of the way in which kinship um, and family is mutating before our very eyes. And I'll return to this issue um, at the very end of my comments. So let me show you this clip, and then I'll finish up um, with those comments. Back up. Yeah, it so, looks like it's about to come on. Yeah. Um, so just to set up the clip, this is uh, six minutes into the documentary, and uh, Deanne is interviewing her brothers and sisters. She she was adopted in 1966, so really the first you know among the first wave, and she's asking them to recount their memories of the day that she arrived. Unlike China, where you're required to, the parents are required to go and pick up the child, Korea will send the children over to the US. Um, and so I actually was talking to one adoptee who said her parents 
wouldn't even go to the airport because they were busy watching a football game. And they you know, just delivered her um, to the front doorstep. But Deanne's parents actually go to the airport and pick her up. Um, so just a few comments. I wanted to focus in on the passage. Um, the mother is looking at this footage that the father has filmed 30 years after she's arrived. And it's at this point that she says, when you arrived, a little stoic face and bundled up in all those clothes, we couldn't talk to you, you couldn't talk to us. I realize now that you were terrified. Because we were so happy, we just didn't think about that. As such, Borsheline must mourn her significant losses, a repressed past over there prior to her arrival, an official history that begins over here, right? If you remember the sister's comments, from the moment you arrived, we were family, that was it, et cetera. Um, or the father's comments, right? Uh, you start to cry, but then from then on it was perfect. Um, so all of these losses, right, uh, these are suffered as a profoundly intrasubjective and unconscious affair. In slightly different terms, while transnational adoptees identify with their parents and their siblings' whiteness, their parents do not necessarily identify with their children's Asianness. Such a failure of recognition threatens to redouble racial melancholia psychic effects severing the adoptee from the intimacy of the family unit, emotionally segregating her, and obliging her to negotiate her significant losses in isolation. If transnational adoption might thus be described as a particularly acute form of racial melancholia, how do transnational adoptees move beyond loss to live and to live on? And here I'd like to turn to a recent psychoanalytic case history and commentary that my friend and colleague Shinhee Han and I co-authored uh, which forms the current basis for my thoughts on racial reparation. So I'm just going to end today by talking very briefly about this case history. Shinhee Han is a Korean-American psychotherapist who immigrated to the U.S. at age 13. So she's part of that 1.5 generation, born over there, but kind of raised here as, an, as in her young adult life. And her family was involved in transnational adoption. Her mother ran the Holt Agency in the Midwest. And many of her clients today um, in New York City are transnational adoptees. Um, so Shinny and I met a number of years ago and we have been writing together around the topic of uh, immigration, around transnational adoption, et cetera, um, and around questions of psychoanalysis, but one from a humanities-based and the other from a clinical-based perspective. So one of her clients, uh, her name is Minna, is a transnational adoptee from Korea, an extraordinarily gifted artist and college student in her early 20s attending dance school in New York City, and she begins psychotherapy because of a series of failed love relationships which she believes are related to the quote-unquote whole adoption thing. Shinhee describes Minna as perhaps the most racist patient she's ever treated. She's full of prejudice and venom toward Asians, especially Koreans, toward blacks, Latinos, gays, and lesbians, basically everybody and anybody but normative white folks. Um, in particular, she hates the Korean nationals at her school. She repeats a number of racist stereotypes against them. For instance, they should speak English. They're in, you know, in America. They all act like virgins, but in fact, they're whores. Uh, but yet, she deliberately, after a number of um, treatments, chooses a Korean-American Korean therapist. Um, the case history, I think, illustrates uh, Melanie Klein as well as Christopher Bolas's contention that love and anxiety for the good object can often become buried under hate, and that hateful actions might be read not as unmitigated destruction, 
but as a substitute for what is at its core an act of love. Indeed, hate might be seen as a last and desperate attempt to preserve the goodness of an object and a relationality that is felt to be under imminent erasure, for under all of Minna's hate, in fact, is buried a deep and abiding fidelity to the Korean birth mother. In Minna, we witness a violent and primitive series of splittings and idealizations such that we are forced to rethink Klein's theories of infantile fantasy life of good and bad objects as well as good and bad mothers in terms of good and bad racialized objects as well as good and bad racialized mothers. Throughout much of her treatment, Minna excoriates the Korean birth mother in extraordinarily raw terms. During many of her frequent rages, she describes her as a stupid bitch and a poor whore and wonders if she ever thought to even give me a name. At the same time, Minna idealizes her white adoptive mother, a woman who would do anything and everything for her. Minna's case history demands a consideration of racial difference as central rather than peripheral to Klein's notions of splitting and idealization, of guilt and depression, and of reinstatement and reparation, which have thus far largely been considered only in relation to gender. In short, we come to recognize that Klein's affective states of paranoia, anxiety, guilt, and depression are also and at once racialized positions. For Minna, reparation ultimately entails the racial reparation of the lost and devalued Korean birth mother. How is such a process initiated? So in Minna's case history, we pay particular attention to the dynamics of transference and to the psychotherapist as a race subject. In particular, we consider how the affective dynamic between the patient and uh, Shinhee, her Korean-American analyst, is framed not only by the public fact of their shared racial difference, but also by the public nature of Shinhee's pregnancy, which ensued during the course of Minna's treatment. Right? So she actually goes out and gets knocked up right, and gets pregnant in the middle of their analysis. Um, Han's pregnancy constitutes her to reformulate a concept from D.W. Winnicott as a transitional object, a racial transitional object for Minna. In short, Han becomes the Korean mother who keeps her baby, allowing Minna to resignify her vexed and melancholic identifications with not only a disparaged Koreanness, but also an idealized whiteness. Ultimately, psychic health for Minna involves creating space in her mind for not just two mothers, but two good enough mothers, the Korean birth mother as well as the white adoptive mother. So I'm just going to end there. I think that you know, this opens up a whole, the psychic questions, I think, opens up a whole other terrain for us to think about how um, these new forms of family and kinship might be sustained, whether they will have a psychic life or whether they will not. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rena Rapp. Thanks so much, Leslie, for organizing this conference, this panel, and thanks to the conference organizers for bringing Faye and me back to Barnard for another indubitable uh, Barnard Scholar and the, the Feminist Conference. It's always a pleasure to be here. Faye and I usually refer to ourselves as having but two tushies with one brain, and it's particularly <laughs> wonderful this time to be both in the room together. So we're going to split this uh, presentation in half, and let me look at the time and make sure I don't overstep my own. And we're talking about our own new work. As veterans in the study of the politics of reproduction, we would like to propose that the conference topic, the politics of reproduction and new technologies of life, be expanded temporally to account for how such practices reverberate through the life cycle beyond the immediate concerns of reproduction. 
We're asking in our current work, what are the life course consequences for families and beyond when reproduction goes awry? In particular, we want to know what happens when compromised infants are born and sustained through the interventions of neonatal medical technologies. Many children now survive who might not, might not have in the past, especially those born at low birth weight after the use of ARTs. Wendy Chapkin was talking about this this morning. Of those, a large percentage emerge with lifelong disabilities, which may range from global impairments to subtle cognitive differences that only become apparent when the child enters school. In other words, in the present era in the US and other developed nations, the dramatic growth in the use of ARTs should be viewed in light of a much larger and more steadily increasing use of neonatal technologies of life, most notably NICUs, neonatal intensive care units, but also less heroic medical interventions such as infant and pediatric versions of portable oxygen, pharmaceuticals, and alternative feeding systems that while simple may nonetheless be life-saving. These enable a much larger range of medically challenged infants to survive. What then are the consequences of such disrupted reproduction and their sociocultural effects in the daily lives of those engaged in using them as one moves through the life cycle? We're engaged in this very broad theme through the specifics of our current research, looking at cultural innovations in the world of learning disabilities in New York City. We would argue that this remarkable so-called epidemic in learning disabilities, as many have labeled it, cannot be understood apart from the politics of reproduction that characterize the present moment in the developed world. The statistics suggest that the extraordinary rise in the LD, learning disabled population, currently about 15% of all students, doubling every decade since the 1970s, is in large measure due to this expanded medical horizon. With more and more premature and medically compromised infants surviving, the consequences of disrupted reproduction are felt more, most intimately and significantly in the lives of their families, often far beyond the temporal limits of neonatal wards, at least in Western countries where these technologies have become routinized. Now, as American families are no longer encouraged to institutionalize their atypical babies, as was the norm until the 1950s, 70s, it is not simply reproduction, birth, and early infancy that are disrupted. As babies with disabilities grow, many assumptions about kinship relations, domestic cycles, and community membership are challenged as well. The arrival of disabled infants into families, in most cases, rearranges presumed narratives of normal, with quotes around that word, family life. As parents, sibs, extended family, and a broader community learn to reframe expectations of everything from developmental milestones to introducing sign languages and ramps in places of worship to discovering what constitutes a least restrictive educational environment. Learning the ropes of living with disability is often fraught with resistance and with prejudice. Battles inside and between families, communities, and institutions frequently entail costly interventions in situations of scarce resources, as is dramatically apparent in recent battles fought by parents of children with autism to get state funding for costly education. Over the last three decades, people from diverse cultural standpoints have been struggling to craft a counter-narrative and political project inclusive of the needs of those who have been marginalized in segregated social spaces. 
Their activism has been crucial to legislative, judicial, and policy transformation that laid the groundwork for the recognition and inclusion of students with LD, including a vast list of institutional changes, which we don't have time to go into, but let me just bullet point them for you. I think we have to start with deinstitutionalization in the 1970s, which brought generations of children and young adults home to families and communities from which they had been segregated before. The incredible importance of the landmark decision, Brown versus the Board of Education, which led to first the rapid integration, often forcible and bitterly contested, of children from African American and other minority communities into the public school system where they were very quickly labeled and resegregated under the labels of special education, which led to a bunch of lawsuits about trying to disentangle IQ testing, labeling of mild mental retardation and the like from race. So that's a part of the American story too, which then gets picked up and is an inspiration in part for the extremely creative activism of the disability rights movement, which is part and parcel of forming the foundational legislative moments in the passage of the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act from the 1975 period on forward, and then from 1990 on the ADA, the Americans with Disability Act. So that history is a systematically braided together history. There's also the rise of special education, including educational psych, which becomes a kind of a gatekeeping to special education and testing in the 1970s. And it goes along with the popularization of a long-standing dilemma about what our educational system is for, why, why Johnny Can't Read is the name of the first book in the series. But you've seen a thousand versions of the popular stories of what's happening to children who are different in one form or another. There's also another story that needs to be told that we don't have time for it here, about what's going on in medicine and science, where the rise of the neurosciences and epigenetics attempts to understand how people vary in their human complexity, where it is that we come to understand how uh, human variation in their brains work is an ongoing project. However, as anthropologists, we argue that the cultural changes that are creating an LD world are far more complex and require attention to innovation, not only in courts, classrooms, media, and medicine, but most notably in the intimacies of domestic life, usually organized around kinship relations. We know social change doesn't occur only through legislation and mandates alone, as important as these are. In all of the stories that we've collected in our research, the story of transformation starts at home. So we wanted to think by talking about the kinship, the new kinship imaginary. While our research initially targeted what we are calling cultural innovators who are reshaping schools, diagnostic categories, and media representations to accommodate children with disabilities, we noticed that all these projects were deeply informed by the paradigm shift families experienced as they realized their experience didn't easily map onto pre-existing models of American domestic life. With nearly every interview, we heard stories about how they were reimagining everything from household budgets to school careers to sibling relations to models of humanity that take into account life with a difference. It is this reframed accounting that emerged in so many of the narratives we want to highlight. We argue that the stories they tell collectively constitute a new kind of kinship imaginary with temporal and social implications. Not only does this new imaginary map on an emergent terrain that encompasses a broad range of humanity, it also reframes the implicit norms and expectations of the life course when there's a difference of disability and it reverberates throughout the domestic cycle, changing its rhythms in unanticipated ways. These reverberations and their impact on cultural imaginaries are thus fundamental to our analysis, bringing us back to kinship, our species' answer to the problem of social reproduction, a system that is resilient, demanding, and adaptable. 
Such new kinship imaginaries are widely distributed in ethnographic research on the assisted reproductive technologies, as we will be hearing about later today in Sarah Franklin's keynote address, and we've seen in the work of Leslie Sharp, Sharp on organ transplantation, to name just two notable studies that demonstrate innovations in kin relations to accommodate new technologies of life. Their work and ours um, are radical transformations in intimate relations which are normalized in the language and practices of familism. Some of these differences, such as the use of assistive reproductive technologies during a limited time period of their domestic cycle, happens for couple, couples with problematic fertility, and they're more easily absorbed into typical family narratives once a healthy pregnancy is achieved. Other kinds of difference, such as queer kinship or the incorporation of disabilities into family life that is our topic, endure in publicly visible ways over the domestic cycle, thus requiring new kinship imaginaries at every level from family rituals to state bureaucracies. We've been struck in our work that kinship ties are everywhere, a diffuse and powerful backstory to not only a changing kinship imaginary, but also a transforming social narrative. It isn't just the powerful resignification of kinship between children with disabilities and their parents and other relatives as transformative that we want to note, although that is extremely important. Coming to grips with learning disabilities leads not only to potential activism, but to the changing shape of a life cycle for that child and his or her intimate others and their domestic cycles as well. When a child's education is stretched out to accommodate difference, so is the time of parenting. When they're excluded from school and must be represented in a battle to access and retain services, so too does the domestic unit change to incorporate such struggles and exclusions. When a child's developmental narrative is rewritten by a relatively late diagnosis, so too is the family's sense of its history refashioned. When family members experience a dead end in the search for innovative searches, services or therapies that might enhance the life of their disabled members, some may even become inventors, researchers, project providers. When children grow through adolescence into a trajectory that does not entail the expected reproduction of class and culture, they travel into an unanticipated future, taking their families with them. It is in this absence of a recognized kinship narrative, we suggest, that families create new kinship imaginaries, and it is to some examples of these that we now turn. So I'd like to bring Faye up. just want to echo my thanks to Leslie and all the organizers of this, and it's great to return to Barnard and talking about reproduction in the human species and not the camel. I have so many camel stories, oh my goodness. Um, anyway, okay, so um, imagining the inclusion of disability does not take place in a neutral public square, but of course on local side streets shaped by particular worldviews. Uh, some, as we will see in a minute, may be inhabited by upper-middle-class professionals in townhouses uh, in New York City's fashionable Tribeca, others by Orthodox Jewish boys in a Philadelphia suburb who go to yeshiva and play baseball wearing yarmulkes, and still others by artists and their offspring living in more bohemian quarters in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Um, and, of course, these kinds of scenarios continue in every direction in our research, but these happen to be the, the clips that we're bringing in today. Kinship is neither transparent nor uniform. It is always culturally inflected. And actually, just to bring up another piece, the data is constantly flying at us. Um, I don't know how many people followed the story about the death of um, Ivan Cameron, the son of David Cameron, the leader of the Conservative Party in Britain. Um, and interestingly, the article in the Times talked about, so Ivan was born um, 
uh, just died, passed away, unfortunately, at age six. Uh, a boy with a lovely smile who was born with cerebral palsy and a severe form of epilepsy that deprived him of the ability to walk, talk, or feed himself, he had chronic seizures, very difficult situation. Um, what made his death uh, a headline and topic of widespread public sympathy while he was alive was that of, he was the oldest child of David Cameron, the leader of the opposition conservative party. Um, and then, but there was something more, and that was that the British public learned about Mr. Cameron and his wife, Samantha, through the prism of Ivan's life, lending a powerful humanity to Mr. Cameron, who was eaten and Oxford educated. Um, lest we think this is simply exploiting his child for political futures, um, he talked about uh, how he had actually had led them to cross class lines in solidarity with other families, with kids with these issues, and also open their home to an ongoing BBC project uh, documenting the lives of the life of their families. So just a very interesting example of precisely what we're trying to um, draw to mind. That, and partly, I think the attention was it was very seemed very unlikely that a person of that political persuasion and stature would um, would be transformed in that way to make their family part of a public project that shifted the class lines in very class-bound Britain. So in, in our clips, um, <clears throat> they come from very different media sources that they were made or part of. The first, Oprah Winfrey's talk show. The second, a documentary, excuse me, the second, an experimental digital animation, and the third, a documentary film each giving a vivid sense of how different each of these life worlds can be, even under the broad rubric of middle-class American identity, and how they catalyze different discursive strategies in order to address the imagined audiences that they are part of and the class fraction to which they belong. What we see here is a landscape made possible and reconfigured by a number of social facts that are like a set of nested cups. The largest cup is the enormous work of social movements and activists affecting legislative and institutional claims on citizenship in the US, as Raina outlined in the first part of this, uh, which is the necessary but not sufficient explanation for how the difference of disability starts to be integrated. But our research is built from the recognition that this is only a starting point, as is clear from uh, many of the other presentations today looking at the reverberations of um, other kinds of, um, what should I say, atypical reproduction. Uh, people are, of course, born into cultural systems and families which first shape their primary sense of belonging and attachment, along with their growing awareness of their rights and responsibilities in the broader public sphere. We are aware of a, of a class bias in the sample we have here, suggesting something about who has access to the means of media production, but we can assure you that these new kinship imaginaries are widely distributed across class and cultural lines in the work we have been doing, mirroring the equal opportunity nature of disability itself. So in the clips we're about to show, we see how different cultural repertoires are marshaled to construct new cultural narratives that accept and even valorize difference and certainly reframe it, and importantly, rewrite a cultural script for normative family life. So the first clip is made with Dana Buckman, a highly acclaimed upscale fashion designer who wrote a popular confessional book entitled A Special Education, taking the title of our research project away from us, poo. Um, <laughs> Oh well, about what she learned from raising a daughter with serious learning disabilities. And Raina thought I was shameless, but after the interview I said, I should have asked her if she had those metallic raincoats she designs on sale, but <laughs> luckily, luckily she shamed me into not asking. Okay. So uh, much of the narrative draws on a therapeutic discourse common to the American upper middle class. It's highly medicalized, but also includes new age elements. The acknowledgement that messiness is better, you should let your feelings out, very much a kind of path to enlightenment story. 
but also in a very American way and typical of cultural innovators whom we are studying in other locations. Dana takes her newfound and hard-won knowledge and becomes an activist with both the National Center for Learning Disabilities, um, stepping into the shoes of Anne Ford, another elite woman who's played a very pivotal role in, uh, as an activist for um, her daughter, uh, who had pretty severe learning disabilities, uh, and an organization called Promise that she helped establish that assists in providing evaluations for underserved poor families in the New York area, and those evaluations are key to getting services that children need that are appropriate. Um, so that's a, a very important intervention and another crossing of class lines like David Cameron from an elite sector to um, others. Mm. Okay. Um, so as you can see, we have a very particular kind of uh, effort to get this narrative out into the public and intervene in um, a prior one that would have suggested that the, her, you know, that this child would not be publicized at all but left in a kind of... Um, you know, the, to in a sense be closeted. Um, the second clip that uh, I'll show is the opening sequence from a film called Escape Velocity, which is an experimental digital animation which has done well on the festival circuit made by the media artist Scott Ligon, who teaches art at a college in Fredericksburg, Maryland. This one is also autobiographical and focuses on his ADD diagnosis, one that he received belatedly in which he resituates in a discourse of creativity of having a brain that is not typical, and I would argue this is kind of the emergent model now. In escape velocity, the term borrowed from physics about um, objects that escape the um, centripetal forces that keep them in orbit, art uses science to explore boundaries that challenge everyday conventions and are a source of creative energy and an unconventional life. Its opening quote is from Driven to Distraction, one of the many books written by an expert on ADD, Dr. Ed Hallowell who's um, been notable in his um, alliances with a lot of people who um, have been patients or who have consulted with him and in his advocacy of the arts. Okay, so for the last uh, example here, <clears throat> uh, somewhat unexpectedly for us, we also found God in our research. We realize now that we had failed to appreciate the complex differences that shape the ways that disability is understood in different religious traditions, a stream that is now part of our research. So, for example, in this uh, clip, um, or in the story, I, the film that we're about to talk about, a bar mitzvah, which requires reading from the sacred Torah scroll, presents a special challenge to dyslexic children. As one of our informants, a Jewish day school teacher, explained in addressing the resistance of such places to incorporating LD kids, quote, it's in our tradition that education and religion are totally linked. If you can't read, you can't pray. Um, happily, although it is slow, uh, and in the private sector, there is, no innovation, there is innovation taking place drawing on other kinds of resources available within a religious community, um, particularly a group that's uh, a, formed in New York called Matan, to try and deal with that problem and how to incorporate that into a, a tradition so um, dependent on reading. So um, the clip we're about to see is from a film called Praying with Lior. How many people here might have seen that film? Okay, because it's done pretty well here. Um, it's directed by Ilana Trachman and was completed in 2007. And it focused on a boy with Down syndrome, Lior Liebling, and his extraordinary family and his extraordinary capacity to pray. Um, and it's built around the tension about whether he'll be able to accomplish a bar mitzvah or not. Um, and many entertaining things happen along the way and also very illuminating things. Um, it, in fact, has done extremely well. It opened to rave reviews in many film festivals and actually had a long theatrical run in New York City and other cities as well, um, suggesting that there's actually a market out there for films of this sort. And I remember in the 
opening night screening at the, it's a, a theatrical run in New York, the numbers of people I recognized from the many different communities we've been in touch with, from Down syndrome groups and others, was very remarkable. And I said, wow, this is the first time. Uh, so very interesting just to think about this as a market. In any case, in this clip, we see Lior boarding the bus for his Orthodox day school. His family are actually Reconstructionist, uh, a, a less, not as, not as traditional as uh, Orthodox Jews. But uh, this yeshiva, in fact, was able to find ways to incorporate Lior's difference, which included, again, his remarkable capacity for davening, or prayer, with considerable success. So we see Lior in his classroom learning the mincha, or the afternoon prayer, an appropriate topic considering that this prayer is thought to be an oasis of spiritual time in the day, a moment of focusing on priorities. And finally, what we want to point to here, we hear that his 12-year-old, we, we hear his 12-year-old Orthodox classmates and how they think about Lior in an extraordinary display of humanity and theological creativity in an age when baseball is usually the top priority. You hear these boys drawing on the Jewish theology of Kavanah or intention, uh, that the worth of one's spirituality has as much to do with the effort and intention of the devotee as with its outcome. As one of the boys says, for Lior, because it's more difficult to learn to pray, it counts double. <laughs> they are 12. Uh, they also draw on the theological notion of mystery, that one cannot know what God's intention might be, and that all living things, including the disabled, are created in God's image, part of a divine plan that we cannot know. And actually, as we've been exploring this in, uh, in different religious communities, including the Jewish one, this notion of God's image has come up over and over again as a uh, primary metaphor. Okay, so we'll watch this clip, and then um, we'll just qu briefly conclude. So just to conclude, um, oh, whoops. <laughs> All right, our machine has ADD here. Okay, so um, unlike more overtly stratified relations of difference, the arrival of children with disabilities into various community circles uh, is largely unanticipated and distributed across all kinship and class formations, and therefore creates a kind of crisis in creating a narrative, which uh, we would argue st stimulates a lot of this work. Two generations ago, many of these children would not have survived early infancy. Some children might well have been institutionalized, like Lior, while many others would have been barred from mainstream education because of prejudice. Their integration into their families, communities, and schools is central to the confluence of the factors that we are trying to describe in our research. These in turn now produce populations that continue to demand and create a new social landscape on which the perceived cultural epidemic and learning disabilities is becoming visible. We cannot account for an important and democratic impulse toward inclusion and belonging of those with all kinds of minds, as one uh, important book has put it, until the work of cultural activists, ranging from irate but resourceful family members across um, across many spectrums of identity, from religious school teachers to bureaucracy-busting lawyers, from lab-based neuron scientists to fashion designers, as we saw. Uh, these all need to be taken into account. These and other similar projects across many social domains are transforming a cultural landscape, insisting that difference not be marginalized, making real-time claims on inclusion of disability into the human community. So, Clearly, we need to get beyond the doors of hospitals and clinics to truly comprehend the consequences of the politics of reproduction in this piece of contemporary world. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I want to thank President Deb Spar, uh, the faculty and students here. It's also wonderful to see my friends here, Lauren Laurie Andrews. We have a wonderful presentation. 
uh, earlier today. My talk is going to be about um, uh, comparing basically how we police uh, the wombs of women. And the argument that I make today uh, is that uh, we police the wombs of poor women quite differently than we police the wombs of women who are looking to use assisted reproductive uh, technologies. And uh, I'm very sorry, I was one of these bad people. I should have had this already up here and ready, but okay, this will do it. Is it starting? It's not, it's starting. Okay, so I should stop there and just let it take its course, sort of like labor, just let the baby uh, come out. Here you can like, you know, try to force it, no cesarean sections up here. Uh, are, we, are you sure that it's being birthed right now? Is the, you know, considering, I, I did go through 22 hours of labor with my daughter, so it would not be anything unusual for this PowerPoint to take a little bit uh, longer the time than normal. Okay. This does remind me, in fact, of the day I was in labor with my daughter. Okay, and, then, and I make it full screen, Helen, and then I promise to leave you alone. <laughs> That's okay. I'm so very sorry. I think we're good. Okay. Maybe. Anyone else? Is it F? Someone said something like F H. Yeah, slideshow, where is it? Yeah, I can see. See, and, and, and like uh, Solman, yeah. so many doctors involved, so many technicians in, involved here, and then I think I know where to go uh, from here. All right. So uh, let me begin. Um, so some of you may know that very recently, a woman uh, by the name of Regina McKnight uh, was, recent, was uh, released from... Uh, from prison. Uh, Regina McKnight was a person, uh, in fact, the first woman uh, in the country to be prosecuted uh, for uh, and convicted of giving birth to a stillborn baby. McKnight had no prior convictions, but her drug use during pregnancy violated a recently enacted South Carolina law. Uh, the statute was enforced almost as a strict liability rule. Prosecutors actually never proved that McKnight's drug use actually caused the miscarriage. The state simply showed that there was one dead baby. If the state's interest was, interest was in protecting babies from being born dead, surely there were many other babies to rescue and mothers to convict. But the state's zeal to incarcerate Ms. McKnight invinces other motives. For example, the state continued to pursue the prosecution despite the fact that miscarriages and stillbirths are caused by any number of factors ranging from assisted reproduction, we talked about today, and alcohol abuse to obesity and secondhand smoke. Recent studies, in fact, demonstrate that even a father's age influences whether a baby might be born alive or dead. According to a study published by the Archives of General Psychiatry, Increased paternal age is also linked to autism and other disabilities. 
Recent high-tech, uh, high-publicity births, including that of Nadia Sulman, but also prior to Sulman, uh, Brianna Morrison and Harrison Sextopoulos from last year, raise an interesting point of comparison to the womb policing taking place in states across the country. Uh, in June of it was 2007, not 2008, excuse me, uh, Morrison gave birth to six babies after using fertility drugs these drugs helped to stimulate her ovaries and had been linked uh, previously to risky multiple births. When it became clear during the gestation that the fetuses were at serious risk, Morrison's doctors encouraged her to selectively reduce. However, as happens in so many of these cases, uh, she and her husband refused, saying that uh, her babies were a gift from God uh, and that they were not going to be involved in any such practice as selective uh, reduction. Uh, each baby, however, was in critical condition after birth, subject to a battery of medical tests, treatments, and living with the aid of respirators and feeding tubes. Six weeks after their births, all but one had died. For Ms. Morrison, there were prayers, interviews, blogs devoted to every update on her children's health, websites where there could be donations given, just like in Nadia Sulman's case and just like in so many of the other kinds of births that we might compare to litters almost. Uh, but for Ms. McKnight, there was only the 20-year prison sentence that was handed down by the South Carolina Supreme Court. Now, are these women so different? Didn't they both take risks, knowing that their fetuses might be affected by their behaviors, specifically the drugs that they used? Playing in the backdrop of McKnight's prosecution was another danger to unborn to the unborn that seemingly that sort of slipped underneath the radar, and that is within the context of assisted reproductive technology. And I guess that's the story that I want to talk a little bit about today, and I know that we won't have much time, so I'm going to sort of move on from here. And that is basically the difference in how we treat uh, reproductive possibilities uh, of women, and I'll just give a little bit more background before starting with some of these slides. Um, in recent years, subsidized prenatal care has been tethered to an invasive medical information sharing regime. Women's relationships with their health care providers take on a quid pro quo characteristic. The poor pregnant women agree to confirm they conform their behaviors to almost a communitarian expectation, and as a result, it is thought that they should expect less privacy when it comes to uh, reproducing. And I'll give a, a case here. In South Carolina, like many other states, have enacted these laws uh, where doctors now uh, almost serve as snitches. Doctors and nurses, in fact, in South Carolina, it was actually thought up by doctors and nurses at a public hospital that what they should do, in fact, uh, would be to... Uh, get grants to do PSAs, public service announcements, to encourage poor women on the streets to come in and get prenatal care. And then what they would do is they would turn over their blood and urine samples to the police whenever they found that the blood and the urine was dirty. So like Regina McKnight, Paula Hale was a rape victim and a drug addict. Neither she nor McKnight had ever received rape counseling for the trauma. Uh, and like other women and girls with sexual violence histories, they turned to illegal drugs. 
Hale's pregnancy was the result of that rape, and when she sought treatment at the only hospital she knew to serve poor black women like herself, the Medical University of South Carolina, no one bothered to link her with an appropriate drug treatment program or trauma institute, but instead the nurses and the doctors collected evidence of her drug use to turn over to police and prosecutors. As with 28 other black women snagged uh, in this process with the hospital, Hale was dragged out of the hospital in chains and shackles. To Lynn Paltrow, the executive director of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, these haunting episodes conjured images of slavery, as they would for many of us, to see women in shackles and chains who are pregnant and who are giving birth and blood running down their legs. Indeed, race seemed to dominate every aspect of the pregnant patient's treatment at the Medical University of South Carolina. All the women who were turned over to police for using illegal drugs during their pregnancies were black, with the exception of one white patient. However, hospital officials made sure to note on her chart that the white patient, quote, lives with her boyfriend who is a Negro. And we're not talking about the 1950s, right? We're talking about the 1990s here. So, um, so anyway, this stands this kind of policing, this aggressive policing, and what we know, in fact, is this sort of idea that we're going to police and we're going to police because what we want to do is to prevent babies being born uh, from being born low birth weight. And yet, what, and we know that that's about all that we can get out of, uh, you know, data over the years about women who've birthed babies from crack, in fact, or, or who used crack during their pregnancies and, and gave birth. In fact, the American Medical Association in recent years has said that they will no longer allow the use of the term crack baby in the Journal of the American Medical Association because they said, we don't really know what that means. In fact, what we found in studies is that poverty is a better indication that a child will be born uh, and with difficulties or live a life with difficulties than had a mother used crack during pregnancy. Now, if we were to juxtapose that with what we know about assisted reproductive technology, then we'd say, why in the world are we policing these women and dragging them out when in fact with assisted reproductive technology, we know that there is an incredibly high incidence of babies being born low birth weight, but in addition to that, higher incidences of cerebral palsy, blindness, hearing impairment, and a number of other kinds of conditions. So where does this leave us? I argue that um, part of this uh, sort of story of policing goes way back and it's sort of grounded in uh, our antebellum history in the United States and I'll just run through these slides very quickly so that we can get through Q&A. So Marion Sims, for those of you who don't know who Marion Sims is, he is considered the father of gynecology uh, in the United States. Uh, in fact, from South Carolina, there's a lot of South Carolina stories in here. Uh, he experimented on black women whom he uh, would put at the back of his house. He called it sort of a medical clinic. It was a little shack at the back of his house. Uh, and he would rouse them up at any time, day or night, so that he could perform various experiments on them. There are several statues across the country of Marion Sims, including here in New York in Central Park. It's a picture of Sims, considered the father of gynecology. Um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, and so, so we've got Sims, but we also have post-Sims in this experimentation on black women. And Sims actually is considered the father of gynecology because he invented a number of medical tools through his use on these slave 
women. And to read his autobiography, which is interesting because all of this is sort of self-admission, and, and medical students read it all the time, but they celebrate it. I mean, thinking, you know, you're reading about this man talking about how he had a thought in the middle of the night, and he rouses Lucy up, and he begins cutting inside her womb, and, and this is to be celebrated. Anyway, we move on from there to our eugenics movement in the United States. So this is not just an issue about sort of black and white, but in a lot of ways this is a story about class with how we handle reproduction in the United States. 1907, uh, the first eugenics laws are passed in the United States, and the whole thrust behind eugenics is that we're going to stamp out people, including white people, who are, or stamp out their reproductive possibilities so long as they're deemed to be socially unfit. Uh, and so, of course, if we're going to stamp out some possibilities, we also want to promote other possibilities. So here we have a picture of the Fitter family competition in Georgia. So everybody wanted to be part of the Fitter family and, and engage in these kinds of fairs. I mean, the same kind of fairs where you put a cow on display, people put their children on display for being fit, right? So eugenics uh, spread rapidly throughout the uh, United States. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, becomes implicated in this, this great libertarian, right? He says it's better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can better prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. And basically what that did was to allow, in 1927 then, make it legally permissible for the state of Virginia and any other state in the country uh, to forcibly sterilize people. So in the state of Virginia, they began sterilizing people as young as 9 and 10 years old who came from poor families, poor white families. Uh, the test case that was used involved a girl, Carrie Buck. Um, she was sterilized for being socially unfit. She was the victim of a rape. Uh, she lived with a foster family. Their uh, nephew raped her. Uh, she had an alcoholic mother, and when she gave birth to her daughter, Holmes, you know, thought that three generations of imbeciles was enough. I mean, that's the most famous line from his case. This is a picture of her daughter. Interestingly enough, uh, her daughter ends up becoming, take, is, is taken away from her and is raised by the foster parents uh, in whose house she was raped. And it was actually the foster parents who actually take her to this asylum for the people who are thought to be socially unfit, but they keep her daughter. Um, South Carolina again. South Carolina passes the last eugenics law in the country. Uh, and of course, here we have um, our, our good old boy um, right here uh, and his uh, Senator Strom Thurmond and his good old girl. Now, what's so interesting, right? Strom Thurmond, eugenics law, you know, this sort of staunch, you know, racist and Congress, you know, congressional floor. And, and there he is, the father of this, you know, black woman, all hidden and kept uh, in secret. Something that most people don't know about the United States and its eugenics past is that the law that ultimately became the model which was thought permissible by the United States Supreme Court ends up becoming the very model used in Nazi Germany. Hitler takes it. I mean, we, we give Hitler everything that we knew, and Hitler embraces it. And back and forth, there are many uh, honorary degrees and awards that are given. You know, Hitler's giving honorary degrees and awards to scientists here in the United States. We're giving Hitler awards because we're all thinking that this is so perfect and so absolutely uh, wonderful. That's the Makahi Septuplets. And then there are tales of just very different ways in which we've organized birth where, you know, if... 
long story. But those of you who want to hear about this particular slide in terms of how when the Makahi septuplets were born, how we treat it very differently, another set of black babies who were born without assisted reproductive uh, treatment quite differently. You know, the, the, the black kids never got the invitation to the White House. They never got diapers. They never got any of all those things that uh, the white couple did. And what does this tell us? It, doesn't, it, it tells us that this whole idea that what we really love is a sort of celebration of God and birth, uh, that that's a truism. Well, it's really not. What we celebrate is white birth. And we, that's, that's what we tend to celebrate. Here's a picture of, uh, of McKnight. Um, whom I mentioned uh, before. But here are some other uh, images, too. So we have uh, Barbara Techner on the left, a criminal defense lawyer, who wins an appeal in the case of Julie Starks on the right. Starks was jailed in Oklahoma when, at seven months pregnant, she was found guilty, guilty at trial for endangering her fetus by being present in a trailer uh, that police had raided as a drug laboratory. Here you may also remember the case of Melissa Rowland. Melissa uh, was prosecuted for murder and pled guilty to two counts of child endangerment for refusing to have a cesarean section uh, and was also thought to have uh, been an al alcoholic. And she later, uh, when, when she gave birth, she was pregnant with twins. One uh, was born still, and prosecutors went after her uh, for uh, birthing a stillborn baby. So anyway, I just raise these uh, issues as sort of contrast between how we treat those uh, who don't have the kind of right social background and social makings, you know, um, by race and by poverty. And I think poverty has the huge gloss here in it, takes us right on back through antebellum times and through Jim Crow, all through eugenics, and we treat quite differently the pretty couples uh, who are happy and smiley and who have uh, multiple babies. And what's also very interesting here, and I'll end on this note, is that when we see images like this, and, and similarly to the McCaughys who are in Iowa, we never bother to glance underneath it all. It's what Deb was talking about earlier. We never bother to really question the health. I mean, the McCaughy septuplets who every year get on Good Morning America, every year the kids are on Red Book, the whole bit, but two of the kids can barely walk. Uh, they have significant and severe disabilities, but they're propped up and we smile at it all and we never bother to consider what their health conditions are and what their life possibilities will be. With that, I'll conclude. Thank you, guys.